Lots to come over the next two hours in the show. But we start, as always, with the Sunday papers. In a moment, we'll be joined by our uh, newspaper panel to go through the uh, the stories in a bit more detail. I'm going to run through the headlines very quickly. First of all, starting with the Sunday Times, GSOC phone powers face legal review. A story by John Mooney saying the Justice Minister Francis Fitzgerald has promised to review the law which allowed the Garda Siakana Ombudsman Commission to access the phone records of journalists in an attempt to identify their confidential sources. Uh, I think what Francis Fitzgerald is suggesting is the uh, the idea that a judge uh, th- th- basically has to okay it before um, in the future before journalist phone records are going through, which seems like a sensible move. They also have a photograph of French special forces. Uh, taking up position at the Splendid Hotel in Burkina Faso yesterday. The headline is Westerners targeted in African Hotel Carnage. The story says uh, French Special Forces stormed a luxury hotel held by Islamist terrorists in Burkina Faso yesterday in a bloody uh, end to a siege in which at least 25 people were killed. And just one other story worth mentioning on the Sunday Times front page. Uh, John Delaney uh, under fire for backing a Kelly campaign. That's Alan Kelly. Apparently John Delaney has been uh, criticised for appearing on the hustings with the Labour leader Alan Kelly and urging people to vote for him. Yes, you can see why the two of them would get on well. We might come back to that uh, story uh, in a moment. Uh, the Sunday Independent, uh, FF tells Martin do deal with FG or face a heave. Uh, leader insists no way he will enter government uh, with Kenny. And that's Micheál Martin has been told apparently by senior party members to consider coalition with Fine Gael after the election or face a possible leadership challenge if the party fails to achieve power. And Brendan O'Connor has a piece saying, admit it, you want to go back. At this stage, you might as well just go to whole hog and vote Fianna Fáil back into government. I know, I know. But on some level, deep down, it seems that's kind of what people want. Is it? Okay, we'll be discussing that maybe in a moment or two. The Sunday World leads with clickbait. Rebellion actress targeted by users of six sites along with stars and local teens. And they have a photograph of Rebellion star uh, Sarah Green there. Um, the Irish Mail on Sunday, Graham Dwyer, Why I'll Be Freed. In chilling prison letters to au pair, Elena Harris Killer reveals he plans to use controversial comments by state pathologists to overturn murder conviction. The Sunday Business Post finally leads with exclusive cab breaks at silence on Moriarty Probe. Uh, the Criminal Asset Bureau uh, talking to uh, Francesca Cummins, the legal affairs correspondent, and the boss superintendent Eugene Corcoran. Uh, saying we intend to interview all relevant uh, parties. He stressed it was not a member, a matter rather, of singling out any individual. OK, let's go through those papers in a bit more <coughs> detail. We're joined, uh, I'm delighted to say, by Transport Minister uh, Pascal Dunhu, uh, Fianna Fáil general election candidate for Dunleary, uh, Mary Hannafin, and the uh, economist with the Institute of European Affairs and columnist with independent newspapers, uh, Dan O'Brien. You're, you're all very welcome, uh, guys. Let's let's start with those uh, polls. Um Pascal Donahue, there had been something of a momentum behind Fine Gael since the summer. That momentum seems to have been stalled. You do seem now to be stuck at around a 30, 31% mark, at which level you would lose a lot of seats and you probably wouldn't get back into government with Labour if they're at either 6 or 9%, I think, is, is where they're at in the two polls today. Well, look, I guess it's at this point now I break into some cliches that you would have heard on many times okay. before. <coughs> Snapshot but, in time, the real poll will take place on such and such a date. And, and, and the reason why all of those are cliches is because they're true. You know, we see again and again that uh, opinion polls look at where people are at a point in time. 
uh, this is happening in the run-up to a general election. And when we get into a general election period, people will be focusing in on how they actually want to vote and who do they want to be in government. Mm. Uh, insofar as opinion polls are of any use whatsoever, you look at the long-term trend in them, uh, which shows that uh, uh, Fine Gael uh, has, been, has been rebuilding support. Uh, but our overwhelming focus is on going into the election campaign, campaigning on our long-term economic plan, creating a further 200,000 jobs, making work pay and using all of that mm. to pay for better public services. And do, that's do you what accept our focus though, will be on. If, if this were replicated, and look, I, you know, you're, you're absolutely right to, to point out the health warnings, but if this were replicated, if either the Business Post poll or the Sunday Times poll were replicated in the general election, the coalition would not get back, certainly in its current form, it would need support from others. And with respect, Shane, I, I'm not going to comment mm. on a, an election that hasn't even taken place yet here. Mm. Uh, we have seen in so many elections, both here in Ireland and abroad, that when you get into the election campaign itself, uh, people really begin to focus in on what they want, who they want to represent and what kind of government they want. The election will be soon. Uh, obviously, it's up to the Taoiseach to decide when that will happen. And as I said, we'll be focusing in on our long term plan. We'll be benef- campaigning on that uh, and pointing to what we have achieved in office with the support and resilience of the Irish people and asking mm. for uh, their support. Michael Martin this recovery said you want going. a coronation. Uh, the Fine don't uh, want an election, they want a coronation. Nothing can be further from the truth. There's no party more aware of uh, the uh, difficulties the Irish people have gone through, let alone the importance of this election. The central question will be, how do we keep this recovery going? We're in a situation where we now have the fastest growing economy in Europe. We've seen over 130,000 more jobs created, but people need more than that. Uh, While there is recovery underway, more people need to benefit from us, more people need to participate in us, and we'll be campaigning on the platform of how do we keep that recovery going. Okay, Uh, Mary Hannafin, I mean, the polls interpreted by the media is good news for Fianna Fáil, but it's all margin of error stuff. I mean, you're still only a little bit up from where you were in 2011, which was... Pretty poor. We could all do the, the cliche bit and every politician I think says it's a snapshot in time but the reality is it's, it's, as a There's been a snapshot in time for a long time for Fianna Fáil hasn't it? You see, as a politician you really don't like it when you're down in the polls and you take kind of smug satisfaction when you're going up a little bit in the polls and I think for Fianna Fáil the important thing is that we've started to go up in the polls at exactly the right time. At the time when people are starting to think who they're going to vote for Margin in the of next election. So you could just as easily go down minus one as well. But we didn't. We didn't. We actually went up in both polls. We went up 2% in the Sunday Business Post poll and we went up 1% in the uh, Sunday Times poll. Um, so insofar as you can show a trend or a direction, at least it is going in, in the right way. And I think that's because people have actually started to focus on the election, uh, the formation of the next government uh, and who they're going to vote for. I think particularly from being out on the doors, they know who they're not going to vote for. I think that's becoming clear. Um, now, there is another step uh, to get them to decide, you know, to vote for me, for another Fianna Fáil candidate or, or to, to, make, to make that decision. Um, but increasingly, the idea of the fair society is coming through. And one of the questions that people were asked was, um, you know, if, did they feel that they benefited from the recovery? And 50 57% of them people said no. Yeah. They didn't benefit Aren't from you always going recovery. to get that? People are rarely going to say, yeah, I'm doing great. No, but it's true. It's actually true. Uh, there are people who haven't benefited. Uh, and we sit here and 1,500 children didn't have a home last night. Um, the homeless crisis was at its biggest than it has ever yeah, so been. Some people would say, 
because of the mess Fianna Fáil got the Absolutely the not. It's because it. of a lack of priorities in this government in the last five years. You can't just keep going back uh, five years or, t- or ten years. You have to look to see what the priorities were. And the priorities did not revolve around people uh, who were needy, people who needed a home, people who needed medical cards, people who were being charged for prescription charges, um, people who were, were trying to s- support young families while paying very high mortgages and these are the people who have mm. got left behind okay. uh, while the emphasis has been in budgets on the better off. Okay, uh, Dan O'Brien you, you, you obviously would monitor elections all across Europe. You did an interesting piece uh, a couple of weeks back on this citing the example of what happened in, in Greece and Spain and saying this idea that the stability me- uh, message from the government will definitely work. You're saying it's not really borne out by the experience of countries like Spain and Greece. I suppose the counter-argument with that would be, well, maybe we're a little bit different because our recovery has been better than those uh, economies. I think it's probably fair to say. Yeah, I think you could, you could definitely say that. But I, I think that the, the almost universal sense amongst political analysts is that as we go into the campaign, there will be a defragmentation of political support yeah. and, and people will go no, away from no independence. Sign of it happening at all. There is no sign of it happening. And just I'll pick up on just something about, about the Fine Gael trend in a minute. But there's, given how really good the recovery has been and that it's now three years old Labour hasn't benefited at all, that's absolutely clear nobody questions that from all the opinion polls and Fine Gael is back up at 30% but that's really where it was in 2012 2013, before the water charges problems and the difficult 2014 year, so really if you compare where Fine Gael is now uh, compared to 2012 2013 when the economy was on the floor there's still, you've still to see a benefit feeding through to Fine Gael, so my, my point about what happened in other countries, particularly other Southern European countries and indeed further afield, is that that really has been a change in politics. People are a lot less happy with the centre-left, centre-right, and they're moving f- further away. There is a fragmentation of the vote, and I'm just not convinced that when people come to look at who they want to vote for, that they will go back to the mainstream parties. And it's just an interesting thing from the Sunday Business Post today, that, that, that one of the questions was, now that we are out of the recession, we need a change of government in order to deliver a fairer society. We need a change of government. 60% of people said we need a change of government. 38% said no. So that that alone, that, that, that question alone and the response to it, again, would suggest that it's not as straightforward as maybe the mainstream analysis, political analysis, suggests that people will go back to mm. the, 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 the centre ground, the mainstream parties. Okay. And I, I think and that can, word, can, can I word that? fair, you see, is the one that's well, going to come through. Uh, the fair society. It's not just about okay. An economy, you, you, you've, you've got your you've got your party political. I know that's no, 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 I know the fair society is no. Is, no, but, but sorry, that, is, that was actually that, that, no. But Dan is right. That is the, the specific wording of the question that was asked. So nobody wants an unfair no. society. Uh, and but if you can see the big inequalities that are there and you want to rectify that, that's why the answer to that question is that 60% say they want to change the government. Okay. And the most powerful motor to fixing inequality and creating more opportunity is to have a growing economy and to create more jobs. It gives people the greatest lift out of inequality, the greatest lift out of deprivation and maintaining a motor of job creation, creating further jobs, 200,000 more jobs across the coming years, is the antidote to poverty, the antidote to having the, the funding in place to improve public services. And actually, I want to agree with a, a point that Dan has made there in relation, in relation to uh, you know, the fragmentation of Irish political life. Uh, I have absolutely uh, no expectation or entitlement of seeing either uh, of you know seeing my party be returned mm. to office, 
we are living in a completely different landscape. You it's have to go out I mean, there and fight the, for the top, every vote. The top party at 30, at 30%. I mean, I well, think the lowest ever score the top party in any election has got was you, you guys last time around, 36%. Before that, I think it was 39% for yeah, you to fall. Yeah. You could have an election with no party making getting and more than 30% I mean, of the vote. You know, the answer to why, you know, the, the reason as to why much of that change has happened is an obvious one, but it does have to be emphasised, which is the consequences of an economic trauma that we have gone through over the last number of years, created by Fianna Fáil, that this government has tried to fix. It's scarred people's lives. And now, you know, one of the things I have noticed in the polling that Red Sea have done is they look, they ask people, do they feel the country is on the right track? And the majority of people do feel the country is okay. on the right track. But we need to convert that into now, into recovery that's kept going, that more people benefit from. OK, Mary Halfin, um obviously the Fianna Fáil are this, this weekend. Um, Micheál Martin gave, I think, a, a pretty decent performance uh, last night. A lot of focus, though, on, on coalition. And you, I mean, you're quoted in the Sunday Independent today. Are, are you slightly at odds with, with your party leader? Because Micheál Martin saying, absolutely not. We're not going to go with Fine Gael. We're not going to go with Sinn Féin. Is Mary Hannafin saying something slightly different? No. <laughs> the question I was asked was, you know, who would Fianna Fáil mm. go into coalition after uh, the next election? Um, now, we're very firmly setting out our stall um, as a single party who could lead a government. Hold on, not to be a minor party in it. Um, and I think his speech last night was very punchy, upbeat, full of substance um, and attacking the direction the policies have taken, not just on the economy, but also in, in the way uh, the inequalities have developed. Um, I was saying quite clearly, under no circumstances would Fianna Fáil go in to coalition with Sinn Féin. Okay. Uh, I just would not countenance that. And Fine Gael? The question about Fine Gael was then, could you work with Fine Gael? Yes, I, I think there are elements that we could work with Fine Gael. We would have to change a lot of their social emphasis, but we could work with them. My problem with that would be that it would leave Sinn Féin as the largest opposition party Mm. and that would open the door for them for the following election. Now, that would not be in the best interest of this country. Okay, so are you saying no to Fine Gael as well on that basis? So are you in agreement with your party leader? Yes, I'm in agreement with my party leader. I mean, as I was saying, you could talk to the Fine Gael and you could work with them in the way that I would never talk to Sinn Féin, Anti-Austerity Alliance, a lot of those very left-wing parties, um, because I think all they do is talk about destructive politics um, and negative policies, and we've yet to see, and hopefully we will over the election, to see what do they actually stand for. Mm. Dan O'Brien. Another interesting reason that that Fianna Fáil probably won't go into a uh, coalition with Fine Gael was cited by Timmy Dooley and Dara Murphy in the Sunday Independent today and they were saying that they would, they would only go in with Fianna Fáil if they were the bigger party. Yeah. But that cuts the other way. I think most Fine Gaelers would say exactly the same thing. They wouldn't go into coalition if they were the smaller party with Fianna Fáil. Now, unless the two parties have almost identical seats... There's got to be revolving very Taoiseach in that scenario. Well, per- perhaps, but, it, but it's it, unlikely it, to happen. It's unlikely to happen. Polls, so, if one party is smaller, the, the the people, most people in the party that's smaller, because there's a view that it is an iron law that the smaller party gets clobbered over the course of a government, mm. that will be a strong dynamic <coughs> against going in. So, if one party is smaller, the opposition in that party to going in will be very strong, and that will that will militate against a, Fianna, a grand coalition Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, I, I, I think. Mm. Uh, Pastor Luna, do you have a view on this? Because there are people in your party uh, who think, you know what, a Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil coalition mightn't be such a bad idea. And I'm not one of them. No. Uh, I believe the, uh, uh, the Fine Why Gael, uh, because I believe the combination of Fine Gael and Labour, which are food to very different oh, yeah, political Grant, That's parties. your first choice. But if that doesn't get, if that doesn't uh, fl- uh, fly. No. Again, uh, that is the... Uh, 
uh, we're talking about an election which, as I said earlier on, nobody has cast a vote in and both parties can go forward uh, pointing to how they've worked together and asking for the people to mm. re-elect Yeah, them. no, we know that. We know you're going to, you want the coalition to be returned but people have a right to say well what if we decide not to return the coalition what would Fine Gael do then because it looks like Kenny is is going to be Taoiseach regardless of what happens I think he's 8-1 to one on with the bookies Micheál Martin is 8-1 to one with the bookies and that, 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 shows and, and so, that, that is an analysis so it is legitimate to ask well, who, are you well, going to, who see, would you go into government it's with? It's the presumption of your question that, that I disagree with. The any sense that the, the sense that there's any inevitability whatsoever of Enda Kenny staying on as Taoiseach. We have to go you think into Michael this. Martin could be Taoiseach? I think anything could happen in this general election. And I think one of the themes in many of the newspapers today that we might have a chance to have a look at later on is if you look at articles from Sean Whelan, from Colin McCarthy, from Jim Power, they point at the growing instability that's taking place politically and economically around Ireland and will be contending during the general election that crucial to how to manage all of that will be having a stable government just as the stable government helped our country navigate its way through very choppy waters. I mean you could have you could have a, a fairly comfortable majority. And, and there's two reasons why I uh, do not want to see that happen and uh, believe that a, a Fine Gael Labour one is a better government than anything, than okay. what either party could achieve there. The two reasons are, first, uh, I believe the damage that Fianna Fáil did do our, to our economy between 07 and 11 does not make them fit for office. Their policies wrecked our country and they should not, and we'll be arguing just during the election campaign, the repetition of those policies could destroy our country again. And secondly, I believe it is the, important... The policies, by the way, that you all advocated as well when you were in opposition. Uh, we should say in the, in the interest of fairness, I don't, no, I don't remember Fine Gael opposing <laughs> tax cuts or spending increases at the time. But hopefully and you'll also remember Richard Bruton coming out and uh, arguing benchmarking against one, benchmarking. Yeah, one swallow doesn't make uh, a summer now. In fairness. Uh, it's, it's a hell of a swallow. Yeah. Now, the well, benchmarking, given that the majority... Really it's it's a, a billion euro in the, in the context no, of about 100 billion that was spent around Given that, that the majority of wage increases that, given that the majority of spending that happened across that period was absorbed in wage increases and you mm. also heard Richard arguing the point as finance spokesperson that the, the fact that we had an economy that was over-reliant on construction, wasn't diversified, posed a huge risk to what could happen to our country. That's mm. what happened. Yeah. And if you look at I the, don't remember Enda Kenny warning about that in advance and saying there's too much emphasis on construction but but look, anyway, we'll um, Mary Hannafin. I think people are a little bit in. tired of the mantra now, you know, that it was just Fianna Fáil that wrecked the economy. And if there's one thing that the banking inquiry Well, you did, were in government when the no, economy but was If there's wrecked. one thing that the banking inquiry did was that it highlighted that yes where there were failures of overdependence on the construction industry which I accept um, but there was also failure of banking and there was failure of regulation and there was also an international crisis and Fianna Fáil wasn't in power as we point out in Spain in Italy in Portugal in Greece all of whom suffered uh, huge economic crashes as well um, so uh, people have now seen the bigger picture and they accept that and you're quite right in saying the Fine Gael didn't shout stop I mean I was Minister for Education at a time where I would quite happily have spent more money if I had been given it. But I was being screamed at, I shouted at across the chamber to spend more. Uh, I was being told the country is awash with money that you should be spending. Yeah, you were more. reckless in government so, though, weren't you? I no, mean, no, no, I, no for absolutely the not. Banks, absolutely not. I mean, when you see the developments that were made in education, that were made for special needs, that were made uh, with housing for people, um, the supports that were given on chi- child benefit, uh, on pensions, and these are the type of priorities that we got right. Now, some yeah, of them were wrong. We I'm not saying that. we couldn't that. afford as it The big, out, very yeah. big difference now 
is that the Fine Gael, who are now shouting about our economic policies, were the ones who implemented Brian Lenehan's recovery plan. Okay. But when they were left on their own, just to make this final point, okay, do when they were left it. on their own without the Troika, without the economic plan that had been left for them, they then lost sight of what equality in Ireland means and they have failed to deliver on housing. There's the scandal of homelessness and there are vulnerable people of all ages that Fine Gael and Labour have just forgotten. Just very, very briefly, Pascal, because I do want to bring uh, Dan O'Brien. Um, look at homelessness. Look at the fact that a new homeless centre was opened up in Dublin across the Christmas period providing an additional 100 well, Pascal, beds. look at homelessness and in the, the doorway. And the antidote to all of this happening is to having a growing economy. And I read Micheál Martin's speech last night and what I was struck by was the presumption that economic growth is continuing in the future. He talks about job creation, but there's no plans for us. The presumption that our economy... Well, it was really striking in the entire manifesto, in his entire speech last night, there was just an assumption that the economy will keep on growing. No analysis of what needs to be done to make that happen. No suggestion of a long-term plan Mm. to deliver growth for our economy. There's a fair few presumptions in the promises of Fine Gael are making that the economy... So, sorry, if I may, and Enda Kenny will well, do the same you, next you, week. So I'm sorry, Pascal. No, we've we've one one voice, sorry, sorry, hang on, one and, voice. And let we, Pascal answer well, the question. We've there. already outlined very clearly with the plan that we have there that we are saying that with growth that would happen within the economy, we've outlined what we will do to deliver okay. that. We'll do more during our election okay. manifesto, but by allowing government expenditure to grow at a slower rate than overall national income growth, mm. we will use that and other okay. measures All to right. fund the abolition Dan of O'Brien, the US. As, as the, I suppose, the neutral observer uh, here in, in the studio, Fine Gael and, and Fianna Fáil, can, can you see a reason why they shouldn't be in government together? Well, certainly, <clears throat> certainly not from a policy perspective, but for those political reasons that uh, Mary has alluded to already, that it would leave leave the opposition uh, open to to, to uh, Sinn Féin, and that could lead to a, a major realignment in politics. And the other reason that it could end up with a smaller party, either Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael, uh, withering away, as so many other smaller parties have done in the past. Mm. So it seems more political than policy. Uh, the arguments against a, a grand coalition of Finnfolk. Interesting, just Dan, and we, we do need to go to a break. Interesting, Michal Martin, first time I heard him yesterday uh, in that speech, sort of saying Brian Lennon w- uh, was the start of the recovery of the economy. Finnfolk have been kind of afraid to make that point because they're associated with the with the economy crashing, but he, he said that in the speech oh, last I think Finnfolk have been banging that drum that, you know, that, the, that the plan that, that the government inherited was largely their plan, and therefore Finnfolk like to take some credit for the recovery that it was largely a plan put in place by their government. They took tough decisions at the end. Uh, they admit they made big mistakes before the boom, but once the crash happened, they took these very tough decisions, and effectively the current administration inherited that plan. So I think that's a, that's a, that's a drum they've been banging okay. for quite a while. And Pascal, just before we go to a break, you're, you're saying you don't want a Finnfolk coalition, would you serve if, if Enda Kenny decided to go uh, in that way? You're asking me again and again about an election If you could see the body happened. language now, listeners. Uh, I mean, uh, <laughs> all that's missing here from the table now is a huge crystal ball <laughs> and uh, I'm not going to put one on the table here. Okay. I've made clear what my views are on the matter okay. and I think that, you know, uh, you know, the Taoiseach has already made clear who will be campaigning with during the election. All right. Okay. Uh, our guests are uh, Pascal Donahue, Mary Hannafin, and Dan O'Brien. They're staying with us. More from the Sunday papers after this short break. 
Okay, welcome back to the Sunday show. Shane Coleman with you until noon today. We have in studio Transport Minister Pascal Donoghue, uh, Fianna Fáil general election candidate for Dunleary, Mary Hannafin, and the uh, economist uh, with the Institute of European Affairs and, of course, columnist with the independent newspapers, uh, Dan O'Brien. Um, we're going to talk about um, migration and integration uh, in a moment, but uh, just before we do, Minister, I think sport is part <coughs> of your portfolio. I, I'm interested in your take on the, that story in the Sunday Times that um, John Delaney, the chief executive of the FAI, has been camped Canvassing with uh, Alan Kelly, um, is that uh, is that advisable for? Well, the I, I I read the article yeah. and I I, I know to start the. Uh uh, Matty McGrath is uh, comments on the story. He's, yeah, now, Matty's I, not impressed. I would respectfully suggest that Matty McGrath would not be an impartial observer in nope. all of this here. No, nor, I would have his views on the matter. I wouldn't be. And uh, my own view is that uh, what you know people do in their own personal time is their business. Uh, yeah, this is the body getting state funding, though, yeah, isn't it? But I, I don't yeah. see any evidence there in that article, and it's something that I, you know, I, I will have a closer look at here. You know, you know, did it happen? There's a photograph there. There's a photograph there, yeah. yeah. But uh, I would be certain that uh, John or anybody else who's involved in a public body would not be out using their public offices to advance any candidates. Well, what anybody, like what, what do anybody does in their private time is their business. Uh, but what's, I, the, what's the difference, though? I mean, are you not always chief executive of the FAI, even in your private time? Yeah, but I'd be very, you know, be very, very important to me, and I would expect this to happen. That anybody who's leading up an organisation that's funded with taxpayers' money, you know, would not be out advocating for any political party. Now, does that the, mean are you going to be picking up the phone to John Delaney on this in the coming days? Well, actually, I, I do deal with the FAI and all of our sporting bodies very, very regularly, and uh, I would be confident that John or anybody else would not do that. Uh, with respect, Mister, how can you be confident? Because he's he's there in a photograph beside Alan Kelly. Now, I, I'm not for one minute suggesting he's introducing himself as John Delaney from the FAI, but he's John Delaney. Yeah, but but again, you know, we have an article there that has you know one source within the story. You have mm. another incumbent TD in the constituency commenting on us. What I'd like to do first of all is just establish what happened here in relation to us. But from dealing with the FAI and John Delaney, as I do on many matters, as I do with other sporting organisations, I do not believe that they would be out mm. using their offices to advocate any candidates. Yeah, a spokesman for the Labour Minister said he didn't know whether Delaney was formally canvassing for Kelly. He and Al met uh, a few soccer clubs about their future funding requirements in Tiptown and other places in the constituency. I couldn't say if it was formal or informal. That's John Delaney's job to answer. They've been working together over the last couple of uh, months. Uh, on increasing funding for soccer. Uh, Mary Hannafin, you I think the way out for this for John is to then give his time to other candidates <laughs> in other constituencies. And I have some really successful soccer clubs in my mm. constituencies, Joyce and Sally Nogan and Kevin Teeley Football Club. So if you'd like to kind of address any imbalance, mm. he can come canvassing with me out there. Okay. Minister, just well. lastly on this, you're, you're saying if it's a private capacity, you don't have a problem. If it's a public capacity in his FAI role, you would have a difficulty. And I, w- uh, I, I think anybody who would be receiving taxpayers' money, it would not be appropriate to be canvassing in that role. And uh, I am confident, though, it is, of course, a story that I would read with interest that neither he nor anybody else would do that. OK. Um, Dan O'Brien, you're uh, writing in the Sunday Independent today about, uh, like it is... It's the story of the last year in many ways, uh, and that's the story of, of migration and, and integration and interesting developments in Germany where the, the Chancellor is coming under pressure as it emerges that um, uh, quite a number of the refugees aren't coming from places like Syria. They're actually coming from North Africa via Greece and so on. Now, you, you can't blame these people. They're trying to get a, a, a better life uh, as, as they would see it, but they're certainly not refugees in the, in the strictest sense. Yeah, well, look, you know, this 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 the, the cover. 
analysis of this tends to go from either one side of people saying we should be extremely generous and take people in, or the other side, uh, there's a big, big threat to us. Um, and, you know, both positions are actually correct. There, there, there are threats from mass migration. Um, there are also opportunities. Um, yeah, you're, you're writing about and, the, the and, opportunities today. In that uh, well, that how you, in, in, you know, how you can take a difficult situation and try and get the most out of it. You know, you've always got to look at opportunities in life, and there are opportunities in the big thing, of course, is to try and get people who do arrive for whatever reason, once they're, uh, once they're deemed uh, to, to be refugees or they're, uh, they're allowed to stay, that they should start working. And I think that's, uh, you know, that's where the opportunity is and that's what we need to focus on. But there's, you know, there's no doubt this is a really uh, big change has happened, particularly since the spring of last year. By August and September, there were 160,000 people a month applying for asylum in Europe. And that's, you know, kind of eight times the numbers, monthly numbers, if you go back to 2008 when they started collating the figures. So it it is a very big number. Uh, And, of course, one of the big reasons for it is what's going on in the Middle East. The biggest number of people coming in the first nine months of last year were from Syria, one in four people, uh, Afghanistan, and then Iraq were the two other countries. Mm -hmm. But apropos the point you made at the beginning, there's no doubt that there is an opportunistic element that people from around the world see that there's an opportunity. The borders look as though they're opening and to move. So an example of that is that there are almost as many people coming from Albania and Kosovo as there are from Iraq. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's as you said. That's not to criticise. If I was living in those countries, you know, you'd say, "Hey, is there a chance to get into to Europe and and how, get a better life?" I'll take the chance, uh, and that is certainly adding to the numbers of people applying uh, and adding to to, to the mm. pressures and concerns. Um, a lot of criticism of the EU's handling uh, of this, and I mean, I, I think Jean Claude Juncker uh, mm. gave a speech basically saying, "Europe, we we need to get our act together on this," but. I mean, it's an incredibly tricky issue for them. To, I, I'm reluctant to criticise because it's how do you deal with literally hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people uh, coming through your border? It's very difficult to plan for that. It, it's very difficult. Like there are, there are a whole number of things. So one of the big responses has been to try and get Turkey to get more involved on, on its side, which is largely a way of trying to get Turkey to contain the problem so it doesn't arrive, ar- arrive in Europe. And Turkey's been given €3 billion Euro by the EU to, to do this. So that's one element. There's a security element. What can Europe do in terms of security to, to calm places like Libya, where many people come through and you know, Libya in, in in, is a failed state it, itself? So there's a lot of things you can do. You can increase the capacity to process people so that the, the asylum applications are, are dealt with more quickly. And then, you know, some of the things I'm talking about today is to try and get, once you make that decision, try and get people integrated into work as quickly as, as possible so that they're contributing and that their skills are being used rather than have them be uh, a drain on, on, on countries. Just lastly, before we go to the rest of the panel on this, I mean, you are writing about, and there's no doubt migrants can, they can be a, a, a huge positive for an economy. They tend to work harder. They tend to work longer hours. We've seen Irish people, I've been like that myself when I went across the J1, my parents couldn't believe how long I'd worked. Yeah. They'd never seen me scratch myself before. Um, the cultural differences though that are there when you, when you get people coming from Muslim countries to a, what are essentially I suppose, a Christian society, there's not too much Christian about it now, I suppose you could argue. 
is that a concern? Is that a, and a, it's it's almost unfashionable and unpopular to raise it, but is it a legitimate concern about those cultural differences and how well those people will integrate, if at all, into our society? It certainly is, and we can't, you know, and I would say it's more a secularist versus very traditionalist religious uh, difference. Europe is a secular place rather than a Christian place. I think that's what characterises a society more than more than a Christian place, and those values can be very different from countries that are highly socially conservative and highly religious and it's again it's a difficult you know it's a difficult issue without you know you don't you don't you don't want to demonize people uh, and you don't want to disrespect their culture but at the same time it has to be clear that if you come to a, a, a place I lived in many other countries before and you go to a country and so you know living in Britain I don't didn't go around criticizing uh, the queen I personally don't I think republics are a much better idea than monarchies but you know I was a guest in the UK I didn't go well, around criticizing well Rome, yeah. and say you know so you know there has to be respect on both sides but it does need to be made clear that there are certain values that we have in European countries that we are not prepared to allow other people um, to impose their values on us and that needs to be made uh, clear and it needs to be uh, made you know emphatically and rules need and the law, laws need to be need to be observed and, and applied Mary Hamilton, you're, you're, you're nodding your head at that. We, we had Lucinda Creighton on, on the programme last week talking about this very issue and she generated quite a few headlines by basically saying there should be, she thought there should be better screening of, um, of refugees and asylum seekers to make sure that people weren't, those people weren't uh, a threat to our democracies. You see, this is the biggest humanitarian crisis of our time, of our generation. The idea that 850,000 people um, tried to come into Europe just last year alone, mm. um, I think, raises <coughs> questions about all of us uh, uh, and our societies and about our attitudes and about our values. Um, I mean, and Dan is right. I mean, when people move to a different culture, you have to be able to, to integrate and integration is the key. But there's two very different approaches being taken in the newspapers I see um, this week. You have um, Jean-Claude Juncker, as you say, uh, talking about the economic threat which there is to Europe and saying quite clearly that there is a danger to the passport-free Schengen zone, the euro currency and the European economy. And Germany particularly now uh, is under severe threat, despite Angela Merkel at the very beginning having been really welcoming did they, did to they so not, many. Did they not think it through, do you think, when you look back at, at Ang- Angela Merkel? I, 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 I think at the initial stages she saw an economic value, she saw a social value, she saw an ageing society in Germany, she thought this was going to benefit Germany as well as addressing um, a humanitarian need but then well, I think was probably overwhelmed by the numbers, not helped by the fact to know that Sweden, Denmark and Austria have all imposed restrictions, which is putting even greater pressure on Germany. And then on the other side, you've had your hands on writing about a really serious issue, um, which was the attacks on women uh, and the sexual attacks on women uh, in Cologne uh, over the, the new year, uh, which appears to have been carried out by groups of migrants. Um, and the difficulty she's talking about, and she's right, is she's saying that women and other observers are nearly afraid to talk about it as being about migrants doing this because they're being accused of being racist. Uh, and she said quite clearly that the right of women to walk unmolested matters more than that of migrants not to be criticised. Mm. So there's a huge, I think, learning process about integration, about values, about cultures and about language. And I think one of the areas where countries fall down uh, when it comes to ma- mass immigration is that they don't insist 
on migrants learning the native language. And you cannot do what Anna's talking about and in integrating into the workforce unless you have language. You cannot integrate into schools. You cannot integrate into society. And immediately then you're ghettoising these people. OK. Um, Minister, where, <coughs> where do you stand uh, on this issue? It, it's, it's a tricky one because a lot of people, I think, a lot of people are genuinely torn in this. They like, I mean, they like instinctively the idea of helping people of, of you know, mm-hmm. the Cade Meal of Fulge, if you want to use that, that cliche. But there are huge challenges about integration and immigration. And I think there's a danger you can gloss over those. I think what we're dealing with now is probably the single greatest economic and social change that we're likely to have to respond to in the coming decades. If you look at the, uh, you know, what prompted Dan's analysis and the commentary in relation to it here, we're now seeing the largest movement of people across borders in Europe since World War II. Mm. And if you look at the outlook that for the coming years, we're unlikely to see further stabilisation in the Middle East. We're seeing growing challenges across North Africa in relation to the stability of their states. And then the Balkan uh, and uh, states at the moment, they face great challenges in relation to their own economic growth and stability in the future. So I just think this is the new normal of politics and the new normal of the challenges that countries need to respond back to. Uh, I see the positives outweighing the negatives. I think there are fantastic opportunities to enrich societies. But I think in order to do that well, I think there's some recent experiences from Ireland that we will have to do more of and learn from ourselves. And they fall into three different areas for me. I think the first one is, is that we have to stand over our own rules and our own cultures, our own culture, particularly in the area of equality and all people being equal and treating people equally when they're here. We have to be aware of what our own culture and language is. And the second area of, of how to, uh, to uh, act on that then will be what happens in education. I think the secret story of how successful Ireland has been at integrating communities into our country uh, has been the great work that was done at primary and secondary level with children. And the kind of silent bonding that happened when you're there with other cultures at the school gate, greeting you know, parents and kids that are coming mm. out of schools. And I think we need to build on that in the coming years. And then thirdly, I think we need to recognise that there's two different migration flows underway or two different population changes underway. One's prompted by people who are looking for refugee status and fleeing from terror. Mm-hmm. The second and larger group is economic migration. And we need to have different responses to each. OK, all right. Um, our guests are uh, Pascal Dunne, who you just heard of their Transport Minister, uh, the Fianna Fáil General Election candidate for Dunleary, Mary Hannafin, and uh, the economist Dan O'Brien. More from the Sunday Papers after this short break. OK, welcome back to the Sunday Show. Shane Coleman with you until noon today. Our guests are still with us, uh, Pascal Donoghue, Mary Hannafin and uh, Dan O'Brien. Now, you, you might not have known this, but uh, Pascal Donoghue is a, a huge David Bowie fan. Uh, Minister, big, as you'd expect, huge coverage uh, on the death of uh, David Bowie today. The Sunday Times Culture Magazine is a 10-page uh, tribute to him. Sunday Business Post, 8-page tribute. Neil Hannan, Aidan Gillen, uh, Colin McConnell of the, 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 the frames. Uh, Jeremy Clarkson sticking his oar in. I, I don't normally agree with Jeremy Clarkson, and I, and I would be a Bowie fan as well but there is a, an almost pressure with social media nowadays to to join in the kind of national mourning isn't there? There is but I think all of the coverage uh, of us is entirely justified yeah, uh, no, because he was so rare as a, a figure who managed to reinvent himself with an amazing frequency and in so doing he, he straddled not only music but culture and he had a transformative effect on each and I mean, I only, uh, um, 
when I grew up and was uh, kind of beginning to listen to music, I, I had the awful experience of being introduced with music by the whole Tin Machine era. Yeah, it was Which great. Was, was dreadful stuff. Yeah, it was. And it put me off for a kind of a short while. And then a few years afterwards, I got an album called Bowie at the Beeb, 1968 to 1972. And it was a double album of a live gig he gave then. And I'd never heard anything like it. Never heard anything like that music. And I managed to kind of leap over the the effect that was the Tin Machine and go back and listen to Ziggy Stardust, uh, you know, that whole period, Hunky Dory, all those albums. And they're just magical albums. And uh, I was devastated when I got the news on Monday because I'd only just recently got his album that's only come out in recent weeks, um, uh, Black Star. And uh, to think now that he'd just given a new gift to people like me across the period when he was... Uh, about to die is just typical of the kind okay. of legacy he's left us. Minister, I'm impressed not just that you had uh, you knew you you'd bought the album, but that you knew the name. But I I can never remember the name of any <laughs> albums anymore. I just stick them in the CD player. But, uh, yeah, but show uh, my aging by saying CD I, well, I, player, I think it's yeah. interesting because in some ways, if you look at some of the big changes that have happened in music recently, like the predominance now of touring. You know, more artists now get as much revenue and profile from touring as they do from releasing albums. And even now albums, it's so much now about the single or the Spotify soundtrack. Yeah. And again, typical of the man, he didn't go in either direction in recent years. Hasn't toured in years and then just released two fantastic albums out of the blue there over the last number of years. But it was extraordinarily prescient about how the music industry was going to go with, with the internet 10, 15 oh, years ago. Absolutely. That interview with uh, on um, news, uh, with Jeremy Paxman was extraordinary. Um, we, we're going to talk about 1960 in a moment, but during the break we were, we were just, we got chatting about the Oscars, uh, Mary Hannafin. Great success story. Um, great Irish success story there. Um, you're a big fan of Room in particular. Um, well, it's an amazing Irish success story. And one of my former ministries was Minister of the Arts, you know, and to have seen what um, relatively small investment mm-hmm. can do mm-hmm. uh, and the way they use it so well, you really have to give credit to everybody in the Irish Film Board and everybody attached. And I think no matter who's in government the next time, I think it should become a, a priority yeah. and not just for the arts, but for the message it sends worldwide about us. Um, I really enjoyed the book of Brooklyn, but I haven't seen the, the film. Um, I loved Emma Donoghue's book, Room. Um, and I think the film is probably the same. It's one of those ones you say, no, do I really want to see this about a child and a mother in a shed yeah. and they're kind of locked up together? And then it turns just at the right time. She just has a magnificent way of writing and of capturing the reader um, as, as well as, as the, the, the language. Um, so I, I think it's absolutely magnificent, the fact that we have so many people who are going to be yeah. there. It'll, it'll be an Irish night at the Oscars. Uh, Dan O'Brien, you're, you're not a big fan of Brooklyn, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, I don't want to be a party pooper. <laughs> That's but, okay. uh, <laughs> Uh, that film was uh, tough going. <laughs> um, really, really tough going. Uh, let's let just be more positive. I'm, I'm looking forward to either reading uh, or, 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 or watching Room. Yeah. Let's leave it at that. Okay. I mean, Room is, an, I couldn't agree more with Mary. Uh, Room is an extraordinary book. And Emma Donoghue and the diversity of her output. We're only talking about the book after, which is called Frog Music. To think that she wrote both books and then has done so well with the script for Room is such a credit to her and to all who were involved in our yeah, cinema. And the great moment. to see Lenny Abrahamson, um, the man with the hardest name to pronounce in in, uh, in the cinema. Uh, great to see him kind of getting promoted to the Premier League of, of directors. I mean, and it's just so obvious that he was not expecting it. He yeah. genuinely uh, wasn't genuinely expecting nice, it. Genuinely you know, nice and then suddenly guy. he's but up with the his, big boys. His CV, I mean, yeah. Garage, I think, is the best Irish film ever made, yeah. bar none. I think, I think he's absolutely fabulous. Listen, let's talk about 1960.
interesting. We're, we're almost out of time. Um, Dan O'Brien, a lot of people writing about it. Say um, Owen Harris is writing about it. Conor Brady has an interesting uh, piece about the man that shot, um, and actually it's it's featured in in Rebellion. The man shot at, at Dublin Castle, the constable, and how he had interviewed his his son and, and Justine McCarthy. I suppose writing a defence of of 1916 in the Sunday Times today. Well, I, I don't think Justine's piece is a defence of 1916. It's a bit of a straw man. You know, she's attributing to people various uh, various things, uh, such as the commentariat is mortified that England was caused bother. Like, that's not my reading of, you know, I would certainly be of in, in the camp that we should be focusing on Independence Day should be the big focus. It should be 1922, achieving statehood should be the big focus, not... The it started with 1916. It, things it? may have started, but you know what do we what do we what do we want to celebrate? Do we want to celebrate our statehood, or do we want to uh, celebrate death? Other countries have no problem doing it. France, the United well, States, they well, don't have a difficulty well, doing it. The US celebrates Independence Day, and the, the French do celebrate Bastille Day. Uh, is it a coincidence that it's one of the few countries where they have constant street demonstrations and riots and, uh, and violence on the streets is acceptable or, or quasi-acceptable? Mm, okay. I'm in favour of looking at what, what the positive, which is our statehood, 1922, and getting away from this fetishization of, of, of the death and the killing of 1916. Mary Halfen, I'm guessing coming from a Fianna Fáil background, you have a different view on this. Actually, at our Rordesh last night, we had a really lovely session um, for an hour uh, commemorating 1916, but also highlighting the links of the families of the 1916 Rising, the families in Fianna Fáil. So we had a De Valera, a Lamas, a Brewer, a Ryan, a McDonough, all members of the family there last night, not making speeches about um, republicanism or anything, but actually reading poetry, giving accounts of the Rising um, from an individual perspective. Uh, and I think it showed a greater picture that, yes, of course, uh, it was a, a revolution for independence, uh, but it was also a cultural rising, um, that it was also a reflection uh, of people who had genuine grievances with England, but who also wanted to see a better Ireland. Yeah. Um, and, and it was a lovely kind of a um, snapshot of a time and a people and their link with 100 okay. years ago and what it is today. All right. OK, I suspect this is an issue we're going to be discussing uh, quite a bit uh, over uh, the coming weeks. Uh, we're, we're out of time, though, but uh, my thanks uh, to Pascal Donoghue, to Mary Hannafin and to uh, Dan O'Brien.